in late 2001, when the rest of the world was still reeling from the terror attack of 9-11 and the subsequent war on terror, there was a mastermind criminal who quietly moved into the Diamond District of Antwerp, bought a, uh, rented a space next to a bank for $700 a month, and started concocting his mastermind plan. He was an Italian criminal. His name was Leonardo, and he, in renting this office space, posed as a diamond merchant. He and his team of five other criminals spent the next 18 months planning and grooming the bank that they had targeted to hit. The vault that they happened to set their vile affections on was situated two floors below the main floor, and as you can imagine, it was protected by the best security measures money could buy. The vault had a lock with 100 million possible combinations, had infrared heat detectors throughout the building. It had seismic sensors that would sense any movement in the vault. It had Doppler radar and even a magnetic field that if the magnetic forces within the room changed, it set off an alarm. Security cameras were everywhere. There was even a private security force that was on site 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. If you wanted to protect your rough diamonds, this was one of the places you would choose to put them. But in the late evening hours of February 15th, 2003, some 18 months after they had started concocting their plan, Leonardo and his team went to work, and by 5.30 a.m. the next morning, they had opened almost every safety deposit box in that vault and taken out their contents, making off with over $100 million in diamonds and gold and silver and other rare and precious jewels. Even with all those safety precautions on this bank, they could not prevent the most determined of criminal masterminds from snatching them away. You see the spiritual parallels, but let me make it clear. We have before us a text that makes known a guarantee that is far greater, far more secure than anything this world has imagined or surmised. In fact, we'll see in our text this morning a string of truths that stand as a bulwark and a wall of security that cannot be broken, cannot be climbed over, and cannot be gone around. It is an undeniable, unalterable reality that Christ's sheep will never be lost. And I would argue with you this morning that there is nothing more needed in your relationship with your heavenly father than an understanding of your security in Christ. Understanding that you, because of Christ, are a son or a daughter of the king. That you can't lose that standing, that you can never be changed from that status, that you cannot be a sheep today and a goat tomorrow. For if you could lose your eternal salvation, then this would change the entirety of your journey of faith. It now becomes more about works than trust, more about effort than faith. But if John 10 is true, if what Jesus says in this text is true, that Christ will not lose any of his sheep, then your journey through this life is filled with a, a resting confidence a hope-filled, settled expectation that you will know eternal life in Jesus Christ 
our Lord, that he as your good shepherd will lead you in and out to this abundant life. Before we jump into this text, I want to remind you of where we're at. It's been a few weeks since we've been in John, so let me paint the scene for you again as we parachute back into John 10. We're at the midpoint of John's gospel in John 10, but we are, are really coming down the home stretch of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're about three months out from his final Passover, which turns into his Passion Week as he dies on behalf of his sheep, is buried and is raised again on the third day. In John chapter 7, we saw that Jesus came to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And from chapter 7 to chapter 10, we've seen this, this rising tension building between Jesus and the religious leaders. The Feast of Tabernacles happened in the fall of the Jewish calendar. And here we are about three months later in December as we come in to chapter 10. As we see this rising tension, we see these religious leaders reject his words and deny his works, even works that are so plain and obvious they are undeniable. Like a man born blind from birth who was given his sight simply by the sovereign power of Jesus. Given this unmistakable, validating proof that everything he was saying was indeed true, they still persisted in unbelief. And so in the first 18 verses of chapter 10, Jesus lays out a discourse in which he uses a, a metaphor, a word picture, an allegory of sorts, a figure of speech to take something from real life and everyday Jewish culture and, and say, just like that is true, this is what's true about this situation. And so he says to them, these leaders who are leading you are not the true shepherds. They are hirelings out for their own good. They care nothing for the sheep. And when they see the wolf coming, they will flee and leave. And the sheep will be eaten and scattered. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I have been sent from my father to be the good shepherd. And I am not just the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. He who comes in through me will have eternal life. He's making clear that he is the only way for salvation and the only shepherd who can guarantee eternal life. These religious leaders seem to have gotten the point, at least in some way, they have a rudimentary understanding of what Jesus was saying about them. Because it lights a match that explodes into controversy and confrontation that we see in our text. They are annoyed and miffed that this teacher from Galilee would appear on their turf and call them out as false shepherds. How dare he speak these things to our people? And so we come now to verses 19 to 24 in which we see their reaction and we see Jesus take their reaction and make a contrast to true sheep. Showing in their reaction that they are not sheep, he uses that moment to explain what is true of his real sheep. And there's nothing more encouraging in John's gospel about your nature as a sheep of Christ than this text. John 10 verse 19 says this. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And by that they mean because he has a demon, he is insane. They don't mean two charges there. They mean he's an insane demoniac. Why listen to him? Verse 21, others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Pray with me, would you? God in heaven, thank you for this text, this inerrant, inspired, holy word from you. We ask that you would take this word and by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts. I pray especially for those among us who may think they're sheep, but they don't actually know this security in Christ. Father, would today be the day in which they recognize they're outside of your herd, but by grace through faith can be brought in through the door who is Christ. Lord, may today be the day of, of their receiving eternal life. I pray for those among us who have the, the least confidence in our security in your son, who are indeed your very own, but who struggle to believe or sense that this is true. Father, would you take the truths of these texts and implant them deep in their heart? Would you settle this issue for them once and for all? Would you confirm to them that you have loved them with such a love as to never let them go? Would you convince them that they will never perish? No, never. Father, we pray this in your son's name and for your glory. Amen. The text starts with a division among the leaders, doesn't it? It says these Jews are not agreeing together about what's true about Jesus. Receiving that stinging rebuke from Jesus about their false shepherding, they, they rejected it and him altogether. But some of them, in their rejection, took it a, a notch up. They, they call him a demoniac and say he's therefore insane. Why listen to him? He's a crazy man. It's an assessment of Jesus that is entirely unhinged from reality. Even they should know that. Some of them, I'm sure, were there in Mark 5 when Jesus came across the demoniac in Galilee. And when they saw this man in, in the, the crazed state of having many demons, you remember what his state was? He lived out among the tombs in the graveyard without any clothes on and he couldn't be bound and he screamed and cried and cut himself and was just a, an awful sight. Jesus is nothing like that. He's entirely put together, makes complete sense when, he's, when he talks, has all the faculties of his reasoning and they yet say he is a demoniac. They're doing that not because they think he actually has a demon, but because they've challenged his authority and they can't refute him. They've come up against him and they can't outwit him. They can't shut down his arguments. They can't outdo his works. And so their only weapon left against Jesus in this arsenal of their wicked schemes is to marginalize him with a scandalous accusation that will set the stage for putting him to death. There's apparently others among these leaders who are a little bit more reasonable in verse 21. They say, no, you can't say that when you consider what he has said and what he has done. You can't conclude he has a demon if, if you see 
what he has accomplished with his hand and see the word, hear the words he has spoken. I want you to notice how Jesus' words and works again go hand in hand in the Gospels. His works are visible sermons of his words, which are his audible sermons. He proves the truth of his audible sermons by the veracity of his visible sermons, his miracles. This is in part why it's such a, an anathema for liberal Christians to claim belief and faith in Christ while denying the miracles of Jesus. It's an egregious move. It, it takes away from our Lord the very thing meant to prove that our Lord was right in who he said he was. Without the truthfulness of the miracles, you cannot prove the truthfulness of his words. Even these unbelieving Pharisees understood that. Certainly the church ought to understand that. The rising tension is marked by this internal confusion and this disagreement within these religious leaders. And we'll find out in chapter 12 that there will even be many of them who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but who are scared of the other men and what they might do if they come out in faith in Christ. Here in chapter 10, however, there's a, a rejection mixed with confusion which gets baked in the oven of confrontation. And it comes out in verses 22 to 41 as outright unbelief in most of these religious leaders. John doesn't tell us this, but likely there's a gap between verses 21 and 22. Jesus probably left Jerusalem after the Feast of Tabernacles, went to the, the region of Perea, which we'll see that he'll go to again in verse 39. Verse 22, however, he returns back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. This is the feast we know today as the Feast of Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. It's a feast held by the Jews in early December. It's an eight-day feast, just like the Feast of Tabernacles in early fall. It's not a feast prescribed by the Mosaic Law. You won't find it in Numbers 23 with the other feasts. But it's a, a feast instituted in remembrance of a miraculous recovery of Jerusalem by the priestly family known as the Maccabeans, led preeminently by Judas Maccabeus. In that time, 180, the 180s BC, Jerusalem had fallen to Syria, and in particular, they had fallen to the wicked king Antiochus Epiphanes. Certainly you've heard his name. Antiochus was an awful, wicked, horrific man who sought in every way he could to poke the eyes of the Jews. He took over control of Jerusalem, and he quickly made haste to profane the temple in every way that he could. This was prophesied, by the way, by the prophet Daniel in his book and then played out in world history by Antiochus Epiphanes. Profaning the temple of the Lord, he offered a pig to the mythological god of Jupiter on the altar in the temple complex. You can imagine how egregious that was to the Jewish people, how it lit their fire to oppose the Syrians and to retake the city of Jerusalem. But they were outgunned and outmanned. There was no human way possible for them to beat the Syrians. But God, as he often does, even with unbelieving Israel, miraculously and supernaturally intervened so that the Maccabeans led their revolt against the Syrians and they overthrew and overcame them and regained control of Jerusalem. Judas was a, a, of the priestly family. Judas Maccabeus was a priestly of the priestly line, and so he quickly rededicated the temple and he worshiped in the temple properly with ceremonies of worship lasting eight days. You can look this up later, but there's a uh, somewhat uh, mythological story about the, the oil in the lamp lasting for eight days when it was, should have only lasted for a few hours. We don't know if that happened or not, 
But that is in part what bolsters the Jewish celebration of this with lights. They light a lamp and they add to that light every day for eight days, as you know on the menorah in the Hanukkah celebration. They're remembering what God did for them in the 180s BC through Judas Maccabeus. Now, why does that matter? Why have I given you a history lesson? Well, Leon Morris explains it in his commentary to say that this text boils down their celebration at this feast by saying that they recalled the sovereign God against all human possibilities had wrought a deliverance for his people, had brought them out of their darkness, and had enabled them to offer real worship. Does that strike any chords with you as you think about Jesus in the Gospel of John? That he has come to bring his people out of their darkness and to allow for them to truly worship as they were intended and designed to do? You remember what Jesus proclaimed at the Feast of Tabernacles? He made clear that he was the light of the world and he was the fountain which sprung up to real and lasting life. In other words, he took the core elements of the Feast of Tabernacles and he said, I am the true eternal fulfillment of those realities. He's doing the exact same thing here at the Feast of Dedication. He appears on the scene for the purpose of saying, listen, I am the truest, fullest, and surest fulfillment of this feast. Well, you remember God doing in 186 BC. You must know I am fully and completely doing through my life, my ministry, my death, my resurrection, ascension, and soon return. He wants them to know that as their Messiah, he is the greatest Savior, the truest and fullest and most complete Savior sent by the sovereign God to bring true deliverance from their enemies, to enable them to offer true and everlasting worship. It's with that truth in mind that we read then this interaction in verses 24 to 38. Jesus appears on the scene to let them know I am the fulfillment of your feast. John tells us he was walking in the temple complex, specifically on the east side where the colonnade of Solomon's temple still stood. This is important because John's writing after Luke wrote the book of Acts, but he's showing you the continuity of the disciples of Jesus after Jesus was gone. Remember in Acts, namely Acts 5 and Acts 12, the disciples gathered in the colonnade, Solomon's colonnade in the temple to worship. Excuse me, Acts 3 and Acts 5, not Acts 12. And they worshiped Christ there after he had ascended. John is, is linking to that in his gospel, letting you know that that significant place was significant in Jesus' ministry as well as in the early church. He tells us that the Jews gathered around him, the ESV says, better they surrounded him, they encircled him. This is a, this is a bullying tactic. They're gathering around him to let him know that we're here to force you into our way of thinking about this. Pressuring Jesus by sheer numbers and force to play along with their political charade. Notice how they question his integrity and they challenge his courage. They say to him, if you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. They're basically saying to him, you haven't been clear and you haven't had the courage to be. You haven't told us the truth about who you are because you're a scaredy cat. We're around you now and now's the time, buddy. You're going to tell us right now what's true about you. Are you the Messiah or not? You know they don't want the truth. 
They don't care about the truth. What they want is Jesus to submit to their authority and their wicked plans for him. They're trying to get Jesus to make an open statement saying clearly, I am the Messiah, so they can jot it down, write it down, and take it to the courts and lynch Jesus quickly and overthrow his great sway and popularity among the people. Notice again the masterful wisdom of our Lord here. You should never tire of seeing the goodness of Jesus evidenced in how he handles conflict in John's gospel. We've seen it over and over again. Notice it again, how he constantly avoids the flashpoint designation of Messiah. He doesn't come out and say, I am the Messiah. But there's no one there who doesn't think that he thinks he's the Messiah. They all know he has said it and he has proved it. Whether they believe it or not, they know he believes it. He has been abundantly clear with them. And his shrewd wisdom here in verses 25 and 26 is paired with his courage. What would you do in this moment? Knowing your life is on the line if you answer them truthfully and honestly. Even if you are shrewd in your honesty, likely you're going to light the flame of their anger against you. Jesus knows how this is going to go. What might you say in this moment? Well, notice what our Lord does. In bold courage, he speaks the truth plainly to them, boldly to them. He says in 25 and 26, I told you, and you do not believe. I don't need to say again, I am the Messiah. I don't need to repeat those words because I have told you over and over and over again. You know, but you do not believe. And why don't they believe? Jesus says straight up, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. Friend, notice how our Lord does not hide behind ambiguous statements that are hard to perceive. Notice that he doesn't dance around the core issue and try to leave the door open to mutual agreement and partnership as though they are both worshiping the same God and going toward the same goal as so many in the church today do with the opponents of the gospel of Christ. Jesus is kind, he is gracious, he is wise, and he is bold. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. That's the plain nature of the matter. They do not believe, for they are not his sheep. This leads Jesus then into that beautiful contrast between these unbelievers who are not his sheep and true believers who are his sheep in verses 27 to 30. And yes, that was all intro. 27 to 30 is a pearl of strings, excuse me, a string of pearls, I'll get it right, which forms the most beautiful necklace of truth relating to our eternal security in Christ. You cannot find a passage that lays before you truths one after another like this to convince you that if you are in Christ, it will never not be true. It will always be true that you are Christ. The scriptures are abundantly clear about the eternal nature of our salvation, aren't they? As you think about the, the reality of your eternal life, you know and you are well taught from pastors long before me that that salvation in Christ is eternally secure. You cannot lose it. You cannot do anything to make it go away. It is completely settled and 
secure in Christ. As you work your way through the scriptures, we find four strands that are wound together throughout scripture that form an unbreakable rope sent down from heaven to your soul, wrapping as it were around you, guaranteeing that it can never be broken and you will one day be lifted from the realities of a sin-cursed world into a God-glorifying heaven. There's four strands that make up that rope throughout Scripture. The first one is God's purposes and God's power to save you. When God wants to convince you that you are eternally secure, he will talk about his purposes and his power to save you. That's what our text is. Right next to that, the, the second strand of that rope is the satisfactory work of the Son to accomplish your redemption. He has done everything necessary to guarantee that you can have life and have it in him. The third strand of this unbreakable rope is the intercessory work of the Son as our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. Hebrews 7 is preeminently and primarily about your salvation. He intercedes before the Father, making the case for him that you are his. He's not necessarily praying about your, your next road trip. He's before the Father saying, they are mine. These nail prints in my hand have their name in them. I have bought them with the precious blood I shed on their behalf. This is the third strand of this rope of security. The fourth strand is the seal of our redemption given to us in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. That which Paul calls a, a down payment on our salvation in Ephesians 1. He's the, the seal of our salvation dwelling in you, witnessing to your spirit that you are God's. These four strands work together throughout Scripture to guarantee you that you are God's and that is the end of the matter. You are eternally secure in Christ. And notice, they are all God's work. Father, Son, and Spirit, triune God, working together to guarantee you are saved from your sin, from its death, and from coming hell. The text before us focuses, as I said, on that first strand of those four, the power and purpose of God to save his chosen sheep. And there is no text in all of Scripture that packs more punch than this one when it comes to the aspect of our security. Jesus specifically strings together six truths which make an irrefutable case that he will not lose his sheep. He does not just say, if you are my sheep, you will not be lost and move on to the next thing. If he had, that would have been enough. But he knows we're slow and he knows we need proof. He knows we need truths strung together to convince us. And so he does graciously bend to us, condescend to our level and explain to us, listen, this is guaranteed. It cannot change. And let me show you how it cannot change, he says. These six truths he strings together starts with the sheep's identity. Your eternal security is guaranteed by your identity as a sheep. This is the first truth in verse 27. He calls them my sheep. This identity is simply that you are, 
are one among the flock of the good shepherd. Jesus says this means then that if you are his sheep, you hear his voice and that he knows you and that you follow him. The hearing, by the way, just an interesting note in the original, is singular as a verb. Sheep is plural. This is the singular thing that all of God's sheep do. We serve Christ differently. We react differently. We have different experiences, different levels of growth, different patterns along the way. There is one thing we all do as Christ's sheep. We hear his voice. We listen to Jesus. And we follow him. He is our shepherd and we are his sheep marked by our listening and our following. We talked extensively already about what it means to be a sheep of the good shepherd. I would argue that Jesus' main point in this text is that his sheep know him and they trust him and therefore they follow him. Isn't that the point in the contrast with the religious leaders? They hear Jesus' words, but they don't hear Jesus. They don't hear his voice. They don't trust him. And he said when he was given the word metaphor in verses 1 through 18, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and those who are not my sheep don't hear my voice and do not follow me. They do not come after me. So to be Christ's sheep, beloved, you hear Christ and you follow Christ. Martin Luther said it this way about sheep. He said the sheep, though the most simple creature, is superior to all animals in this, that he soon hears his shepherd's voice and will follow no other. Also, he is clever enough to hang entirely on his shepherd and to seek help from him alone. He cannot help himself, nor find pasture for himself, nor heal himself, nor guard against wolves, but depends wholly and solely on the help of another. In other words, your identity as a sheep of the good shepherd means that you walk by constant trust and faith in the voice of the shepherd. You've learned as his sheep to love his voice, to love his word, to hunger for the life-giving reality of his shepherding of your soul. This relates to your security of salvation in two ways. The first is that it is, if this is not true, then you have no part in the promises which follow. If this is not true of you, if you are not his sheep, therefore you do not hear him, therefore you do not follow him, then the promises of 27 to 30 cannot be applied to you. I've trembled before the Lord that I would preach this sermon in a way that those who are not his sheep would walk away, confirm that they are somehow, and then inoculate it to the gospel call. That somehow they're secure when they're absolutely the opposite. There's no guarantee in my presentation that I can make that happen. I trust the Spirit to help you see the truth of the matter as it relates to your own soul. But friend, if you are not Christ's sheep, you do not hear his voice and you do not follow him. So I ask you, do you love his word? Do you hear his voice in his word? Do you you seek after the voice of Christ? When he speaks, do you listen? Do you not just read the word to get it done, check off the list and move on with your day, thinking ne'er another thought about it the rest of the day? Or do you love his word? I see a lot of guilty looks on your face. 
Friend, none of us read the Bible as we ought. Don't be guilty over this. We all have growth here. But in the core of your being, as a follower of Jesus, do you love the Word? Every believer I know that I can say, I know that person knows Jesus. I can say this fundamental aspect is true of them. They love His Word. They hear His voice and they follow Him. They don't love His Word just because it gives them good knowledge. Just because it makes them smart in religious conversations. They love his word because it shapes their life in such a way that is full of this abundant life of verse 10. So do you believe him? Are his words your very life? Only if that is true can you take the following promises to heart. But the second way this truth relates to the security of your soul is that if you are his sheep and you hear his voice and you follow him, then listen, you can be assured of his protection. We could stop right there, pack it up, and go have lunch because this is true. If you are his sheep, you must know it is a done deal. He will protect you and he will deliver you safely home. There is no better shepherd to guarantee your passage through this life and into the life to come in the eternal heavens. There are no better hands to be in than the hands which are scarred by the nails upon the cross of Calvary on your behalf. This is the sheep's identity. The second truth, however, guaranteeing our security in the shepherd is his gift to us. Jesus says that in verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Just ponder with fresh amazement again this gift from the shepherd for his sheep. Simply by being his sheep, by trusting him as your shepherd, you receive and are guaranteed this gift of eternal life. And notice it's a present possession He says, I give eternal life, not I will give them eternal life. No, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them right now as a present possession eternal life. And if it is eternal, then it can never end. It's kind of the logic of the matter, is it not? If Christ has given you eternal life, it's not life that might go away at some point. It's life that never ends. It never stops. It is eternal unending, everlasting, I don't know, eternal. It doesn't stop. More than that, however, Christ, having given us eternal life, guarantees that you cannot lose it by your own effort or lack thereof. Friend, you did nothing, nothing, to make this eternal life yours. Therefore, you can do nothing to lose it, to get rid of it. Christ does not revoke his gift based upon your behavior or your lack of obedience. He simply says, if you are my sheep, you are given eternal life. And to make sure you get the point, Jesus adds that his sheep will never perish. It's the strongest way to make a negative point in the original. It's a double negative ume. He says there is never any possibility whatsoever of Christ's sheep perishing. Not only does he state it in the strongest negative possible construction, he adds the word translated as never, which is a phrase into the eternal. He's saying this can never be true. Not just now in the present, but unto eternity. So if you are Christ's sheep, you will most certainly not ever perish. 
forever and ever. There could not be a stronger way to guarantee your eternal life. Leads to the third truth, which is the shepherd's power at the end of verse 28. Guaranteeing our security is the shepherd's power. Jesus says that no one will snatch them out of my hand. His grasp of his sheep is so sure and so steady and so perfect that no one and no thing can pluck them out of his hand. By his hand, he's speaking of his authority, his power over his sheep. He's saying, these are my possession, purchased by my very own blood. Being mine, they will never be in danger of being stolen or snatched away. To be snatched away is the same word he used back in verse 12. Remember that? When he said, the hired hand sees the wolf and he flees and runs, and the wolf comes and snatches some away, and the sheep are scattered. That's the same word. It's the danger inherent in having livestock that there are always predators seeking to snipe one or two of them away from you and eat them for their own pleasure. Jesus is saying, I have no sheep that I'm holding in my hand that will ever be taken from my hand. My grasp is so firm, so tight, so sure, so complete that they can never be lost. He told us in verses 17 and 18 that as the good shepherd, he has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Now he says in verse 28, I have authority not only over my life, but also over my sheep. I have power over my sheep and they can never be taken from me. I'm not a farmer nor the son of a farmer as it were, but I happen to pastor a bunch of, around a bunch, a bunch of farmers as I hear you guys talk, it's kind of expected that you're going to lose some of your livestock. I've never heard one of you say, I just can't believe I lost one. I'm not supposed to lose any of them. You, just, you kind of understand that there's going to be a percentage of loss as you raise these livestock under your care. Wouldn't it be a little understandable if in the millions, maybe billions of sheep, that Christ has purchased with his blood, guaranteed to shepherd and oversee, promised to give abundant and eternal life to you, wouldn't it be understandable if one or two of them were lost along the way? Wouldn't we still in all of eternity praise God that we were there? Thank you, Lord, that, that you didn't lose us. Sorry about the one you did, but I, I, we're glad you didn't lose us. It would still be commendable, Right? But it would not be infinitely glorious like this is. I will lose none of my sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice that our security is dependent upon Christ's grasp of us and not upon our grasp of Christ. Our eternal security is dependent upon Christ's grasp of us and not our grasp of Christ. When our kids were younger, as they were toddling along in their development, and we would take them into a big crowd, we as parents would grasp their hand. We didn't want to lose sight of them or lose track of them and have to figure out where they went. And Their security at that moment was not dependent upon their grasp of my hand. In fact, often, as Squirrely toddlers tend to be. They are wriggling their hand from your grasp, trying to get away to go see that balloon that just flew away. 
trying to find a way to get away from you, but the parent refuses to let go. His grasp in that moment is what secures and guarantees that child's safety. So too with our Lord in eternally and infinitely more important ways. Our security of salvation is guaranteed by the shepherd's grasp of us. It's also guaranteed by the Father's sovereignty in verse 29. Jesus says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's pointing us in that statement to the the sovereign power and authority of his Father in two ways. First, he's saying that his Father is sovereign in giving the sheep to the Son. And then he is saying the Father is sovereign in that he is greater than all. So he says that the sheep were given to me by my Father. And he, he says that in past tense, did you notice? That he has given them to me. There's a truth seen all throughout Scripture that God chose unto himself those who would be his before the foundation of the world. It's the truth of Ephesians 1, 4, in Christ, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God has sovereign authority over those who will be rescued from their sins by the power of his grace, provided and paid for by the sacrificial work of his son. And Jesus says, these sheep are given to me by the Father, which guarantees their eternal security. They are a gift from father to son. They will not be lost. He's also sovereign. The Father is sovereign that he is greater than all. In other words, he's able to do this, to give us as sheep to the good shepherd, because he is supreme over all. He's sovereign above all. So the promise of eternal life, listen, extends into eternity future in verse 28 where Christ says, no one will ever perish. None of my sheep will ever perish. And now in verse 29, it extends back into eternity past. Never having beginning or end, except for when we were chosen in Christ in eternity past, never having an end in the future, we are forever Christ. Given by the Father as his sheep, guaranteed by the Father's preeminence by his sovereignty to be saved by him. This is coupled with the the father's power at the end of verse 29. The son's hand cannot be robbed, but neither can the father's. Christ's sheep are doubly secure. They are held fast in the hand of Christ and in the hand of the father. Christ's sheep are, are like Noah and his family in the ark. Entering in through the door, having the door sealed by the hand of God. Safely inside the ark. There, it did not matter how high the waters rose, did it? It did not matter how strong the winds blew against the ark. It did not matter how tall the waves were that crashed against the ark. It did not matter what objects the ark ran into along the way. He, Noah, and his family were safe inside the ark delivered and rescued and given life. So too, you, friend, if you are in Christ, the ark is God, inside is eternal life, and the door is Jesus. You must enter in through Christ into the eternal life with God the Father. And entering in by faith, you will never be lost. No one can take you from that ark. No one can rip you from his clutches. You are doubly secure by both Father and Son. Notice what this insinuates, however, that there will be many forces who try. 
R.C. Sproul once said, my life did not get tough until I came to know Jesus. The reason for that is because Satan, the world, and your own sinful flesh hate that you are in Christ. And if it were possible to pull you from the hand of Christ, it would happen. Guaranteed. There's enough attacks against your soul to rip you from Christ, both from within and without. That if it were dependent upon you staying in Christ to guarantee your eternal security, you would not stay in Christ. But as the attacks come, you can know that the sovereign power of Father and Son guarantee the success of your salvation. And can I also say that no matter how bleak the scene is for the church, no matter how awful it gets in society around us, no matter the attacks the flock of God faces, no matter the internal aberrations and deceptions and heresies that the church runs after, no matter how many clouds are on the horizon of church life, you must know, beloved, that Christ has a sure and steady flock that will not fail. He will build His church. They will not be snatched from His hand. You can charge the gates of hell knowing that even they cannot take you from Christ. You are secured by Father and Son. Lastly, this is stated plainly in verse 30, that you are secure in the Father and Son's unity. He says this plainly in verse 30, I and my Father are one. This is the glorious center of this security. This is the nucleus around which all of the rest of this circles. None of the rest of, of John 10, 19 to 30 can be true if verse 30 is not true or left out. It's because Father and Son are, are unified in every way, in power and nature and essence and purpose and will and word and work that you can know you are eternally secure in Christ. Jesus notably uses the the neuter for the word one. He doesn't use male or female. He uses the the neuter to describe that we are one. In other words, he's saying we're not the same person. There's a distinction of persons. We know that from John 1, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. There's there's a co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent reality to Father, Son, and Spirit. But they are not the same person. Not to be diluted, diminished, or crossed over in our explanation of who they are, but they are the same in nature and power and essence, will and work and words. That's why Jesus can say, when I speak, you're hearing the Father. When I work, you're seeing the Father. When I do, you're seeing the Father's will be done. In other words, friend, beloved, Brother or sister, Jesus is not up in heaven trying to convince the Father that really these are are good people to have as our sheep. He's not trying to overcome his, his negative tendencies, blasphemous as that thought is. No, 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 Father, these are worth us loving. We need to love them. We've we've set our love on them. We need to see them through to the end. He does not have to coerce the affection 
of the Father for you. So he will love you like the Son loves you. He does not have to overpower the Father to arm wrestle him into this idea of your eternal salvation. No, they are, are one together entirely and completely in will and in affection and in intention and in power and in nature and in essence and in word and in work. Your salvation is forever secure because Father and Son are one. Friend, do you hear this eternal life offered by Christ to his sheep and say, I am not his sheep. The Spirit of God in this moment convicts you of sin and righteousness, as Jesus said he would do. You say, I don't have this peace with God. I'm not in his flock. I don't know this security. You can know that security today. You can turn from your trust in everything else and run to Christ and enter in through him into this eternal life. Brother or sister, if you know this Christ, I say to you again, you could not be more secure. And none of that is dependent on you. You could not be more secure and none of it depends on you. Certainly there are times to look upon your faith and examine yourself to be sure you're in the faith. But as the Spirit of God, as Paul says in Romans 8, ministers to your spirit and your spirit cries out, Abba, Father, you long for God in ways you didn't know possible. You know your Christ sheep. Then I say to you, look to Christ. The level to which you struggle with your eternity is the level to which you do not understand nor comprehend nor have applied the guaranteed work of Christ on your behalf. Father, Son, and Spirit accomplishing for you that which can never be undone. May you go forth today, brother or sister, in the joy of your security. Oh, what this should do for you if this is true in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that this is true for those who are in Christ. We praise you that our security could not be more secure, that we will never be lost nor plucked from your hand. We pray, Father, then that you would compel us to walk by faith, to trust you, to depend upon you, to find life in and from you. Lord, would you help us to be faithful with the challenges you've asked us to walk through in the week ahead. Would you lead us as our good shepherd that we might be faith-filled sheep? We pray for those among us who don't yet know Christ. I pray, God, again, that you would take the words of this text and show them the glories of eternal life offered in Christ and bring them to saving faith in him. We pray this, that your grace would overpower their sin and bring them to saving faith. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. There are so many songs in our repertoire that communicate what we've just heard from John 10. There's a recent one that probably says it better than most I've heard. It is he who holds me fast. Would you stand with us and we'll sing and close our service with this song.
Praise God that that is true. I want to remind you of our mission trip meeting right after the service about 10 minutes from now in room 11. Again, if you have any interest at all in finding out more information, you're not committing to anything other than just hearing more about it, please join us in that room for that meeting. It should be about 15 to 20 minutes, so lunch shouldn't burn. Uh, hopefully not. We'll see. But hopefully that will be not that long uh, together there. As we go our way, let me remind you of our evening service tonight. Join us at 6 o'clock as we continue our series in the book of Titus, as well as spend some time praying together. I know it will be a helpful encouragement to your faith. As we close, I must close with the doxology of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God's grace to you.